0: Hi, I'm Katie Kramer, President and CEO of the Better Foundation. Welcome to Colorado Leadership Stories, where we talk to everyday, courageous leaders who have made transformational impacts in their communities and are building a better state for everyone. You'll hear from leaders and organizations and communities throughout the state as we explore the idea that leadership is an activity that anyone can do. Today we're talking to Russ George, a colleague and friend who I introduce with a mix of reverence, admiration, and frankly, adoration. He is the quintessential Colorado kid. Russ comes from a family that ranched and farmed in this centennial state for four generations. He was born and raised in Rifle, Colorado, where he also raised his family, and Russ has had a decorated career in both government and education sectors. Uh, today is retired and has a home in Rifle Still. Before all of those accomplishments, Russ was named a Betcher Scholar. So, full circle with Russell George from 1964 out of Rifle High School. And he would later become a trustee of the Betcher Foundation and our first Betcher Scholar who was chair of our board. Russ is an absolute dear friend, is an incredible mentor to so many, and recently had a chance to talk to Tony Frank, who said Russ was one of his leaders that inspired him so with that we'll we'll get it started. Russ, would you tell us about your childhood and growing up in Garfield County and how that influenced your future path as a public servant?
1: my uh, dad's family were among the first uh, non native americans to come to the rifle area in 1886 and they raised their family uh, on rifle creek my dad's father was the first child of that big family and they were all farmers uh, pioneers in the truest sense and uh, my mother's family came in later they were germans from russia and were essentially driven out of what is now the Ukraine area, mm. all, all came to uh, the rifle area for agriculture. That's, that's how you earned your living uh, for the most part. And so we combined uh, the beef cattle side of the, the George family with the sugar beet side of the Michael family. And I grew up in, in the uh, area between rifle and silt. Uh, my mother's parents lived nearby, and my dad's parents were still on Rifle Creek. Big families all all rolled together, and so my my beginning is all about family and hard work and the heritage from the George side as true pioneers, hard working people uh and and they all worked through the depression and had the same difficulties uh, many other people have. Uh, the German side of the family continued to farm. Very hardworking people, uh, and, and so I, I just learned those skills and values that uh, I was taught by that family. And so uh, th- that was everything to me. The all of them uh, had had lacked the opportunity to have ever gone very far in in public education. So, so they knew that their children and grandchildren were going to have a a better opportunity. So education was from my earliest memories going to be a necessity and expected. Fortunately, that was fine by me because I couldn't do much of anything else other than milk cows and (laughs) irrigate crops and read and study. And I I was good at all of it. Uh, the, The Dad made a mistake. He, he said that uh, if you have homework to do, I'll take your chores. So I always had homework to do. <laughs> and and uh, the other benefit of, of that community was that, uh, as in many great small communities, the, the public schools were taken care of, were supported, and had many good educators. And so I, I benefited from all of that. And as we know, a, a good teacher likes a good student. And and I was a good student, I intended to be, because I could do it and I wanted to do it and I knew I should. And so I, the teachers would step forward and and lead me into success, I should say.
0: Well. You won a Betcher scholarship from Rifle High School and then attended CSU in at Fort Collins in the 1960s and then enrolled at Harvard for law school. I'm curious about your experience of going to school in the 60s during that time, as well as the transitioning from Kid from Rifle to CSU and then on to Harvard for law school. Talk about that.
1: So, uh, also being in a rural school system and and a part of a a farm family, I was exposed early to 4-H and Future Farmers of America, and that's where I think the leadership interest really started. I was very active in in both, and particularly in high school with Future Farmers of America, they had leadership program and and speaking, uh, public speaking programs. And I I learned that I liked that and and maybe had a skill at public speaking and and uh, being able to communicate in, in other ways, and of course, all was based upon the agricultural background and and uh, opportunities. So of course, uh, CSU was very important in in our family and in our part of the state, and I had been so focused on studying everything in high school but particularly the agricultural aspects that it was very natural for me to choose CSU and and I I was afraid I was scared anybody would be, um, be because I had was blessed to get the better scholarship it was a great relief to the family that I could go to a university and focus on the work and not have to try to do other jobs outside of studies to um, pay the bills. And so I was pretty excited. I I will admit I was glad to get away from the hard work of the farm. Any 18-year-old that uh, didn't want to leave home about that time is probably not telling the truth. So I was very anxious. Uh, I'd been back and forth on the campus because I uh, had been active in these activities that were sponsored by CSU. It was the thing to do and I uh, put, put the doubts aside and just started studying like I always had before. But the thing I liked most, and I started in soil science. I really had an, an intention to move, move in that direction. But what I liked about university and CSU in, in particular was that we, we were free to study lots of things, and there were opportunities to reach out and subject matter that that I'd maybe been interested in or or didn't even know about that we wouldn't have been able to do in in small-town high schools. And that really motivated me. So I wanted to be a straight-A student. I knew I could be. And so I did the work. And in a way, I think that helped shield me from some of the more negative aspects of the mid-60s on campuses. Uh, and also, the way I had been raised, I. I knew better because if I got out into activities that were happening and my mother found out about <laughs> it, that would be that. So uh, I, I missed a lot of the turmoil of, of that time uh, and as I look back over it, I, I'm grateful that it, it didn't distract me because with uh, my success at CSU and all that they had done to help their students, it set me in a position that I could actually apply and expect to attend a um an Ivy League law school. And I had changed my focus. I'd always I look back over it and I think, well, why did I become a lawyer? And I can remember almost in middle school that I thought that would be something I would like to do. And I've thought back over it many times why? And and I what I remember is the little bit I knew about lawyers and lawyering is that they were people who had the answers to issues, had the answers to problems, could help you get where you wanted to go. I knew that early on and I really liked that. I, uh, the student in me always wanted to go find the answer and that's that's been true all my life. And so I recognized that at, in, in college. Uh, my uh, sponsor in Soil Science, uh, I still, I imagine, has never forgiven me and my dad said, a lawyer in the family. I'm not sure he forgave me early, but eventually he did. So I knew I, I by the probably mid-CSU years that that's what I was going to do. And so I, I continued to study every other thing because I, I knew uh, lawyers were expected to be involved in all kinds of issues. And, and all along the way, um, the family had been participating in local government. Um, my dad's father had uh, run for county commissioner. My father had been president of of the local ditch board and and had volunteered on the fire department board and and many of the uh, federally sponsored programs that had local input. And so it was common enough um, for me to understand the importance of public service. And there was always discussion about politics and, and government around those families. Uh, In a positive way, of course. Um, Some were Republicans, some were Democrats, so it may not have been um, easy conversation. But that's how I was nurtured, and I liked it. I was interested in it. So when I had the opportunity to go to Harvard Law School, I I felt blessed, and I was very grateful for that. And uh, so I did.
0: And then you came back to Rifle You probably could have worked anywhere, and you came back to Rifle, and you practiced law, right? For about 20 years?
1: Well, I I have to be honest about how it is that I I didn't go elsewhere than to Rifle. Mm. Because in my, what little free time I had while in Harvard, I met the most interesting lady. And uh, I married her later, and she wanted to live in Rifle. Mm -hmm. So that's how we ended up in Rifle and there was a, a law office there had always been the family's a lawyer uh, a young man had um, uh, re- taken over the practice from the older lawyer who'd, who'd been the only lawyer the george's knew and he said the work is good here and i i welcome you if you want to hang up your shingle i'll give you an office and let's go to work and, and so that's how i ended up practicing law and rifle He was interested in in issues other than natural resources, and I I was a natural for natural resources, particularly water law. And uh, so that's how we divided our work, and and we spent 25 years together as partners. It's a wonderful relationship.
0: Wow. And then you navigated to the second chapter of your professional career. You've had a lot of chapters for us, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, which you are going to talk about.
1: Well, my, my wife says the, the whole point of that is that I could never hold down a job very long.
0: Oh yeah. Right. Though other people recognized your brilliance. I know that, but I, um, I want to hear about why public service, what was it, um, that you, you talked about that, that that was part of your growing up. You like to talk about issues and such. Did you, always see yourself running for public office one day?
1: No. Actually, that came almost as a, a side story.
0: No, it,
1: it goes back to this idea that lawyers are people who can get the answers and solve problems. And as a, a lawyer, um, it, it's natural when you work with statutes to try to imagine uh, why is that statute written that way and isn't there a better way? And that, that, was, that seed was, was growing without me thinking, really, that I could do something about it. But I also knew how the, the, the local politics worked. If you wanted to participate and do your citizen's duty in local government, then you should be a member of a party and you should participate and, and volunteer and donate your time and, and uh, skills. And so I'd begun to get acquainted with all of the candidates of local offices, including legislature. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, uh, I was invited by several of the sitting legislators to sit on their advisory committees, or they'd call and ask questions. And so I, I was just slowly drawn into it. And by the time I think it was, I was in my mid-40s, uh, the, the boys, the four boys were all in school and going and blowing, and we were we were busy. And an opportunity came for me to run for State House of Representatives. And it just I, I think these things are are foreordained. I certainly hadn't gone out seeking it. I wasn't I knew I wasn't ready. I was still trying to be a dad and earn, earn a living. Uh, but it happened, uh, and, and that's when when that chapter began. And, and so how I, I viewed that was, well, this is an opportunity for me to be a better lawyer and to help make better laws. And that's how I did. That's, that's what I chose to do and, and where to focus. The politics was never really very interesting to me. Because the families were known in the community, I benefited from that. So I, campaigning was pretty straightforward and pretty easy. Uh, and I was already known. And, and so that that's how I was able to focus um, in the capital in Denver and try to do the work that I wanted to accomplish.
0: And then not only did you do that, but then you become the Speaker of the House of Representatives for the state of Colorado.
1: Well, I can tell you how that happens. It's a, it's a gift from above, of course, and I, I feel very blessed about that. But mechanically, how it happened was that I was, I worked very hard in, in committee work where the bills are crafted. And I. it didn't matter who was carrying the bill, whether it was Republican or Democrat. I thought, if this becomes law, then I'd better help make it as good as it can be. And so I did, and I was helping people. Uh, there, there weren't a lot of lawyers. There were several in, in the legislature. So we were all doing the same thing, trying to make, make the law better. But everyone remembered that, that I... I would help them do their job better. And and that all all came together in, in uh, 1998 when term limits had taken the longtime speaker away so that the position opened up. And I was elected by everybody in the State House.
0: That's awesome, so awesome. Um, pulling a thread from that last answer, and this is one of the things that I think you're a giant for in Colorado um, as a revered uh, leader um, in your career. And that's about what you have talked about, the kind of the Colorado way, the way that we recognize diversity of perspective, hearing all sides of an issues, listening to your neighbors and friends who have maybe competing, but uh, different opinions. And um, you have, brokered some of those difficult divides over the years. I've heard lots of stories about how you have, have done that. And so I, I wonder if it's always been divisive, Russ, or if it feels more divisive now from your perspective. Is this just the way things are, or has that changed over time in your experience?
1: I think a lot about that, and, and I read a, a lot, talk to people everywhere everyone's trying to figure out what's happened. And at one point, a few years ago, when my dad was still alive, he was in his mid-90s, and I was discussing some of the difficulties that we were facing and the the changes that you're alluding to. And he said, uh, it'll be all right. He said, it's always been this way. There's always been trouble. There's always been differences. But he said, people, people know, they intrinsically know that they have to get along and they have to solve the problems in the end. They can be divisive up to a point with the right leadership that, that's respectful, knowledgeable, and really goal-oriented. Compromise and, and finding solutions is as possible today as any time in the past. They, it looks different today because in my mind, of the uh, first time in history change that we have with instant communication and no accountability behind it. Uh, it's social media, internet, and, and the way the system is worldwide and instantaneous has forced us as human population into a place we've never been. You can't read history, you can't think it through based upon how it was solved in the past. It's all brand new, and it's here to stay. And I think a lot of what seems to us now to be worse than maybe in times in the past, or less hopeful than in the past, it is under that shadow. And until we get that sorted, it's not going to look good. But you don't have to step out of this building very far to find many, many good people doing the right thing together, solving problems, respecting each other, studying, learning, doing the right thing. Uh, every every government agency that I've been involved with is full of people trying to find the best way to spend the public's money for the greater common public good. It's still happening. It's, it's sophisticated. It's harder to see, maybe, because we, we communicate electronically instead of face-to-face. We, we're, we're not able to use all of our human capacities to negotiate. And so it looks different. But the goodwill is as strong as ever. I, I have nothing but hope and optimism. While, while I can get depressed at any moment of, of the day when some of these stories come out, in the overall picture of things, I think because of human nature and and the goodness that's out there everywhere you go, that we'll continue to find the right way to reach those compromises and bring each other together to solution.
0: That's great. Just a great message of hope. <laughs> appreciate hearing that, Russ. Thinking about the stories that you've told me over the year about um, many who know you would say, but for Russ George. Russ George did this. Russ George brought us together to talk about it. I, thinking about stories you've told me about that great precious, precious resource here in Colorado water that and central to some of your work in that even. I, I'm curious if you can pull from the many examples, stories that you have Maybe one where some of the things that you're talking about, about maybe an honest broker trying to bring people with diverse opinions together uh, to find our way through compromise. Maybe you could tell a story about how you were present in that type of situation. Maybe you as a leader or other leaders that work together towards some of those difficult things.
1: One of the uh, points that I've observed and cared about over the years is decision-making by some people that affects other people who are not a- included in the discussion. And I I felt increasingly as I have gone through the things I've done that, that that's just wrong. In the, the water world, which was uh, always contentious, uh, it's paramount now because climate change has really put us in into a crisis point along with increased... Uh, Uh, excessive demand I should say, that decisions had been that were trying to be made in in the capital in Denver involving folks at home who didn't have a voice. And and several of us thought that can't continue, that will not solve our problems for the future. So we developed a mechanism, put it into statute, that includes at all levels of decision-making the people on the ground at home who are affected as well as all of the public agencies that have legal responsibility and, and assemble and spend the taxpayers' money. So we put the, the roundtable program together. In every community, uh, re- we reach right to the, to the people on the ground, and they have an opportunity to be heard all the way from bottom to top, if you can say that. And i I traveled the state many times. I went to every roundtable meeting, no matter what time of day or where it was, to to show them that here you can do this. you actually have a voice. you you can well tell me I'm here. I was director of natural resource at the time, and so in a sense, I uh, exuded the opportunity to talk to the boss, and I listened. And and th- there's nothing more powerful than being there w- with them in their home, listening to them tell you the truth as they know it, and then doing something about it. That's where leadership is most powerful. And it works like a charm every time.
0: Well, you had mentioned this, but so after Russ, he's the Speaker of the House, and then you were appointed by governors to be the Executive Director of several different state offices. So... Call it a Division of Wildlife, the Department of Natural Resources, and then Cdot, and so maybe reflect on a biggest learning from serving in those roles. It could be a theme, maybe, or maybe there's a specific one you want a story you want to tell.
1: Well, with the the, the two governors who uh, talked me into those positions, <laughs> uh, starting with uh, Governor Owens and the Division of Wildlife, when he brought me in and asked me to do this, I. Um, I think I may have even scoffed a little bit. And I, I said to him, I know nothing a, a, about the, the wildlife profession, the skills, the science. I, I'm not qualified to do this. And he looked at me and he said, We have a collection of the very best wildlife officers, professionals, and scientists anywhere in the world. But I would like them to have you as their leader. Mm a recognition to, to me that I could work with the professionals by listening to them, letting them participate in the decisions that were of a knowledge base that I wouldn't know without them, but then I could make the connection with, all right, how, who, who do we need to include in this conversation, and then what goals can we achieve? And what I learned, and I probably knew this but hadn't really been close enough to it, is that the people in, in the public agencies are, are, are wanting to succeed, are wanting to do their mission to the best of their ability. They're professionals. They're, they're educated to, to do these things. But they don't always have the connection with the hierarchy. But I, it, I learned that I, I could make that connection and I, I could both up and down improve the communication. And it's worked and continues to work.
0: Absolutely. It does. Okay, so let's talk about then another chapter in your career. And um, higher ed. Did you ever think you were going to be the president of a higher education institution? No. So no. tell us about that story.
1: Well, actually, I I never dreamed that, ever dreamed, that I would, would have the positions that I ha- have ended up having. So that, that's a very humbling observation and, and it is true. I, I didn't have a grand plan, there was no such thing. Okay. I, I was trying to do the best I could at at what was possible in front of me. And I, and that's what I would do, whatever position I was in, I would go to work. I would I'd just do the best I could. And, and then I, there is such a thing as being blessed and having good luck. And a lot of this comes together uh, without me being able to control it or having sought after it. But what I did know from the beginning, because, and I've mentioned this, the education was key in in the families as I was growing up. And and it became key to me. The knowledge was important to me and to do anything more. And I, I was an ambitious fellow. I I wanted to do things. I didn't know what but I took each opportunity and did the best I could. And, and I also used the, the skills that I learned from my family that you, you, you gotta be authentic, you've gotta be genuine, you gotta tell the truth, you gotta mean it, and, and, and be right about it. And not be doing your work for your own purpose, but do it for whatever the, the public goal is. Hmm. And so education was in that theme all my life. And, of course, having gone to very good schools uh, and, and and knowing something about how effective uh, good teaching can be, uh, I I was anxious for the opportunity to be a good administrator to help all of that happen. And, and to be able to be the president of a community college was really a, a dream I didn't know I had come true because the, the community college has... The, the mission that everybody at any age coming from any place can get a, a higher education if they want it at a, a price they can afford or a way they can fit the studies in their family and their work. That's such a magic goal and mission that for me to have had a notch in the structure was really a gift. And, and I, of course, was aging by that time, so I, I knew my... Years were numbered, so to be able to do it that close to home Rangeley and Craig and Meeker—with uh, with just a, a capstone—and and I was—I'm still volunteering and active. I I still absolutely believe education for everyone is how we'll solve the problems of today.
0: Well, it's a it's a wonderful place. Um, we just did a college visit up there. As you know, I have a rising senior this year, so it's a it's a great place and still I know feels the benefit of your influence in Rangeley is where we were. That's wonderful. Um, Russ, I know this, um, this question, you and I have talked about this over the years of sometimes the weight of leadership and its compulsion. You've talked about it a lot in this interview about seeing opportunity, about putting in the work, about wanting to serve, wanting to make things better, solve problems. And I think one of the hardest things is how you continue to refill your own well. And so I I think you and I've shared that that's a hard thing to do, Um, but I'm curious, what advice do you have for other leaders as you're putting it all out there every day because you care so much about all the things that you're doing? How do you make sure that you're okay? Like how have you navigated that in this incredible career all these different roles, how did you sustain yourself?
1: when it was just up to me i I would almost collapse, but happily I had support people around me all the time who who shared the goals maybe they even liked me and were wanting to help me but we had commonness and of course, my wife of fifty years uh, she she was the the key to my success if if we can say that. Mm-hmm. And she, she helped raise these boys who are all just wonderful adults. They're having their own families. They've, they've learned a lot. They've taught us a lot. And, and so during the dark times, which I, I've had, still have, but everybody does. Mm-hmm. And there, there's lots of loving support all around all the time for all of us. It took me a while to, to, to learn how to let that happen, but it, it did. And and I'll say to leaders that are wondering what whether it's worth it, let me tell you, when you do it for the right reasons and work as hard as you can, when you get to the finish line, it will be your blessing.
0: Wow. <laughs> Russ, um, tell us about who some of the biggest leadership influence in either influencers or influences have been in your life?
1: I, I think a lot about that, and and in uh, imagining this conversation, I, I really wanted to to sort it in my mind. And actually, the there's no way I can put a list together of the the individuals that I would say were the leaders that inspired me. There have been so many. And this has been part of the excitement of my entire working life and maybe my personal life, that there are good leaders out there at every level of activity, every level of business or, or government who really have the same kinds of goals, that they really do want to lead all of us to a better place for themselves and for, for others. And I've, I've drawn that energy right along. And I, I just, as I say, I, I, can't, I couldn't get to the bottom of a list to do that. But the other thing about having the opportunities I've had is you get to meet the most exciting, intelligent, brilliant, loving people that God makes. Mm-hmm. And, and the more the better, and that's still happening. And, and that's the blessing I thrive on today.
0: Well, and t- to that point, I'm a career-loving mother here, and those kids are incredible blessing in my life. And I, I'm just curious about the role as a father, a grandparent. Um, how has that influenced your view of the world and maybe of our state these past couple of years, especially since you've retired mm-hmm. from some of these other roles you've had?
1: It, it, it all fits. I, I've been so fortunate in, in having been a part of a loving family all of my life. Uh, having parents and grandparents and other relatives uh, around close and knowing them well and being able to learn from them. There is no substitute for a a good partner, Mm -hmm. good mate. And I felt and still feel and have this conversation with the boys from time to time that I let them down because I was so busy. Mm. And I was ambitious. I, I didn't seek As they say, I didn't have a a master plan, but when an opportunity presented itself, I wanted it, and I wanted to do it. And I didn't take all of the opportunities because some of them, the the price to pay at the family was I would not pay. But I still was gone more than than probably I should've. And I asked the boys about that, and they said, well, we had mom, and we had each other, and we were so proud of what you were accomplishing that we were learning and growing. Said, you owe us back nothing. We're very grateful because we've learned and grown.
0: That's awesome. I'll tell myself that so I feel better <laughs> when I'm missing dinner sometimes too. Um, Russ, you're almost, you've survived this, you're almost down to the end and we have to do a lightning round of questions, okay? So here we go, number one, What was your what is your favorite Colorado hobby?
1: Well, farming, of course. Come see my garden.
0: I was gonna ask how the garden's going this year. Absolutely, what's your favorite thing to grow? Corn. Of course, of course. All right, favorite Colorado landmark? Uh,
1: the uh, book cliffs uh, mm. looking west from the, the, the hillside in east rifle. Uh, either when the sun's coming up or the sun's going down seeing anvil points and that majestic blue mountain looming over there, which I have looked at probably 90% of my lifetime with Mm. just the joy of its majesty.
0: Love it. Number three, what action hero do you most identify with?
1: Well, I don't even know what an action hero is. Any any person who does the right thing at the right time who, who will stand up and be counted when it matters, and drive to a successful end will be a hero in my book.
0: Very good. And Russ, is there anything you're currently binging? Maybe a show, a book, a podcast, something you're following or can't get enough of?
1: Well, I'm I'm old school. I I uh, digest print media constantly, whether it's in electronic print now. Mm-hmm. I still read the pages on a, on the computer as if it's the newspaper. <laughs> I don't sort. Any other way, and as I'm retired and still caring very much about life around me, it's harder to keep up when you have a staff or you have have a focus as a place to work for. You get a lot of assistance. A lot of the information is easier to get to, so that you can continue to feel comfortable that you know what you need to know to make your choices. I don't have that now anymore, so I have to do all of the catching up by myself because people still, gratefully, occasionally ask for my advice. And, and I still b- believe that I can't give advice unless I'm informed. And so, yes, I binge <laughs> politics and uh, the law and all that's happening in the world uh, to the best of my ability and try to, to maybe find some wisdom after all these years that's, that's helpful at any given conversation that's a full-time job
0: absolutely more than right all right so final question i just have to ask this one and that is do you have any advice i know i ask you for advice a lot but final thoughts or advice for leaders in colorado
1: keep it up colorado has always been famous for good leadership and good government and a great society just do your part wherever you are lead every day and do it to the best of your genuine, authentic person.
0: Awesome. Well, Russ, thank you so much for the time. As always, it's lovely to sit and visit with you. Same here. <laughs> thank you for all you have done um, as a incredible servant leader in this state. You inspire so many, me included, so thank you. Thank you for joining Colorado Leadership Stories, where we hope to inspire the next generation of Colorado community builders, doers, and difference makers. Colorado Leadership Stories is presented by the Betcher Foundation. The Betcher Foundation supports Colorado by empowering leaders and communities with tools to tackle challenges and pursue opportunities, building a better state for everyone. With an 85 plus year legacy of giving back, we're committed to amplifying our impact for future generations. That's the spirit of Betcher.